The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, at long last, episode number 38, titled Fisherman's Wharf, wherein we discuss whether 6,000 distinct human languages mean 6,000 distinct worldviews. I'm going to go with probably not. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Well, I'm splendid. How are you doing? I'm great. Have you been kidnapped and held behind a false wall in a remote basement? Where have you been? (laughs) No, I've just been busy, you know. This place, this, uh, you know, slate, it's a sweatshop, literally. (laughs) In in addition to everything else I do here, I'm now making Gap hoodies. (laughs) You know, I worried when they deployed the suicide nets. I did. Uh, I thought this was a a red flag. You saw them outside the building? Yeah. Yeah. That was by my request. Uh Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, we're back, and we Wait, 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 wait. Mike, after this pretty extended hiatus... uh, which was punctuated with a lot of really imploring emails from fans. I think we, you know, owe them at least an explanation, if not uh, an outright apology, for our inconsistency. We uh, we really haven't delivered the goods, and and I'm not afraid to face the music, especially since it's all your fault. Well, like I said, something had to give. You know, those Gap hoodies don't make themselves. And <laughs> and unfortunately, it was the podcast, but I've been ordered by my boss, Andy Bowers, to bring it back because, as you alluded to, it remains one of Slate's most popular podcasts, I think in part because it's not pegged to any particular news or news cycle. And so people who discover it then go back and listen to all of the archives. It has, a, I guess you'd say, a long tail. Yeah, which is, you know, sort of a nice way of framing it. Another way of framing it would be unnewsy bordering on irrelevant, but, uh, you know, I'd like to see the glasses half full. Well, Andy uh, said that, you know, not only do we need to bring it back, but it needs to be regular. I think I found a way to make this manageable. We're going to do an episode every two weeks, alternating between episodes with just you and me, like our typical past episodes, Oh, by the way, those episodes may involve a guest. And then episodes with you, me, and a regular feature involving the great, the fabulous Ben Zimmer, who will more or less bring to us a word or a phrase that has some particularly interesting etymological, historical, linguistic import. And he will spin a little yarn about that word or phrase. You, by the way, Bob will remain not having to do any work at all. Well, I think, as I've said before, I can't argue with the division of labor. So um, uh, it sounds fantastic to me. So I thought for our first episode back, we would offer, I guess, a kind of corrective in a way. We've talked on the podcast before in sort of glancing ways, this idea that the language you speak might influence the way that you see, view the world. The way that you think. The way that you process reality. The, yeah. the idea being that based on the, the grammar and the vocabulary, the um, syntax of language, it changes your lens on the world. And it's a fetching idea. I, I remember being kind of uh, enthused about the notion. But even the most appealing ideas don't necessarily pan out upon 
scrutiny. So uh, we'll be talking about that. So we're going to have back on the show the linguist and Columbia University professor John McWhorter, who wrote a book recently called The Language Hoax. He very much pushes back against this idea that is originally attributed to a guy named Benjamin Worf, and we'll ask John to remind us who that is, this idea that language influences thought. And I think in, an, in the email exchange that we had before the show, Bob, you referred to the book as a screed. And I'm not sure I would go that far. It's, it's a manifesto in his own words, in John McWhorter's own words. Screed and manifesto both work. But he was clearly irritated by the, uh, especially the popular acceptance of Worfian thinking. And not only was he not shy, he wasn't especially delicate in uh, trying to tear the idea apart. But it's witty, uh, it's clever, erudite, it's fantastic. As I mentioned, we spoke with John McWhorter, and the first thing I asked him to do was to just remind us who Benjamin Worf was and how he came about this hypothesis of his. Well, Benjamin Lee Worf, it should be said, was not bad to look at and apparently had a certain presence in a room. However, more to our point, he was an amateur linguist, and that doesn't mean a bad one, but what he actually was was a fire inspector who also had a burning interest in languages, and he made a study of the language of the Hopi Native Americans. He had an idea that Hopi doesn't have markers of tense, no ways of indicating time. John, when you say without tense, in other words, they don't indicate past, present, and future. That's right. Yeah, that th this is a language that does not do that. Just like, for example, our language is one where you don't subdivide inanimate objects into genders. His idea was that Hopi is a language that happens not to have markers of past, present, and future. And for him, what that meant was that they see time as cyclical and that therefore they see things as what we would now call more holistically. And the contrast for him was with what he often called standard average European languages, such as English or German or Spanish or Russian or what have you, where there is this concern with dividing things between a past, a present, and a future. And for him, seeing things as past, present, and future and that whole linear way of looking at things was probably good for coming up with enlightenment science and the like, but probably bad for seeing things in a more general and perhaps more accurate way that wasn't so concerned with those kinds of boundaries. And so it wasn't only that he was making a point about one language in a technical sense. He thought that that language and what it was like had larger implications for cognition and also for a general sense of how human beings are going to see the world. And of course, we can assume then that the Hopi were hopelessly confused all the time in talking to each other because they were like, what do you mean? Did that happen like yesterday or do you want it to happen tomorrow? <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is there are languages that don't mark tense. They're not very common, but you'd be surprised how much, and we can come back to this, context can do when we communicate in real life as human beings. And so the idea that there's a language where there's no such thing as past, present, or future tense is not completely off the wall. What was unfortunate is that Hopi is not one of them. You have plenty of tense markers in Hopi. You have plenty of ways of indicating time. Worf just happened not to know that because he had only so much occasion to study the language. So the first problem is that the opening salvo in this whole effort 
was a bit of a flop. Worf did not happen to live long enough to know this, and so he can't defend himself. But that's not true about the Hopi language. And so say all that you want to about Hopi cosmology, which is great in itself. But the idea that it comes from being filtered through the language that they speak ended up not holding up. Despite these early indications that the Worf hypothesis, that the language you speak influences the way you see the world and the way you think, despite early indications that it may not be quite as solid as Worf had hoped, this idea, of course, is very attractive. And it has, we could say, in the last five or 10 years, has gained currency in large part because there have been a bunch of very clever experiments by psychologists and linguists who are often referred to as neo-Warfians. So before we get to your larger critique of Warfianism, as it's called, let's talk about a couple of those very specific experiments that you, I think, say in the book are interesting and worth talking about. Yeah, the neo-Warfian work is, in itself, just delicious. And I share it with my classes and not in a snarky way. Language does affect thought a wee tiny bit. And the wee bits are interesting. And so, for example, in Russian, you can't just say blue. There is a word for dark blue and a word for light blue. To them, it's odd that we have one word, blue. Now, you can show in an experiment that Russians are a tiny, tiny bit faster than we English speakers are at noticing when dark blue shades off into light blue. And the reason for it, and the experiment very neatly shows that this must be the reason for it, is their language. Their language calls attention to that, and so they are primed a teeny-weeny bit to see that difference more quickly than we do. The difference is, on the average, 124 milliseconds, mind you, but still, it's there. Or, this is my favorite one, there are many languages in the world, including the ones that we tend to learn from English, because a lot of them are in Europe, where you have gender for inanimate objects. It seems annoying to an English speaker because we don't have that. But for example, in French, a table is feminine and a boat is masculine. Now, it turns out that if you are a speaker of one of those languages, then if you're asked to imagine an inanimate object as a cartoon character, you are a teeny bit more likely to imagine that cartoon character as gendered according to what the word happens to be in your language. And so if you are a French or Spanish speaker, you are more likely than, Mike, you or I are, for example, to imagine a table as talking in a cute, high voice and maybe, you know, having little skirts on its legs or something like that. Now, that is absolutely fascinating. It is fascinating, and because it's measurable, Mm -hmm. the uh, neo-Warfians have, you know, done a victory lap and said... QED, there is a measurable difference in the way we perceive the outside world based on language. And from there, others have extrapolated a great deal the notion that you process the world differently. What's, what's the problem? The problem with all of this is the idea that these differences in thought qualify as what you would call a view on the world or experiencing life differently. And that's not anything that any of these experiments show. 
But what happens with a lot of the Warfian perspectives is that people will take some feature from a language spoken by an indigenous group and say that that feature means that they are, for example, more sensitive to sources of information than we are. Their language is where you have to say in a sentence whether you saw something or you heard it or whether it's hearsay or the like. And you could interpret that as meaning that they are more sensitive to where things come from. You'll have another language that is very picky about indicating what things are made of. And so it won't only be about masculine and feminine gender, but it'll be about whether something is soft or hard or how it's shaped. It's shaped like a stick. It's shaped like a ball. You can look at a language like that and say that that means that its speakers are more in tune with their environment as opposed to we Westerners who are so caught up with our iPads and our psychotherapy that we we forget about what's actually in our hands and what we're breathing and what's around us. The problem is that we're often praising people for things that we really wouldn't consider so amazing in ourselves. Quick anecdote, I remember one time I was watching one Native American language being described that has a series of prefixes that refer to how you touch food while you're preparing it, how you chew it, how you suck on it, and things like that. And the person who was researching that language said that they suspected that this was related to the culture of the people. This was based on what those people were like, that they are somehow particularly involved with preparing food and the sensations of food. Really, what this was was praising this group of people for liking food, which frankly is not a sophisticated trait in itself. It's called being human. And I think that we can celebrate people for being human without essentially treating them as talented children, which is what a lot of the warfing implications often end up going into. No one's thinking of it that way, but it's there. Now, if we're to believe that language-influencing thought can bestow benefits, then we also have to accept that language-influencing thought can bestow detriments. Indeed. And a beautiful example of that is Chinese. Chinese, basically, is a highly telegraphic language compared to English. And by that, I mean that if you learn Chinese from English, one of the main things you find yourself getting used to is how much you don't have to say in a sentence. And so there aren't definite articles. You don't have to indicate whether things are plural, and you usually don't. There is nothing that corresponds to our past tense. At first, it seems like there is, but there isn't. And it's the same thing with the future. An awful lot in Chinese is left to context. Now, seeing that, if you're going to apply a Warfian perspective, then you're forced to surmise that there is something about the Chinese consciousness, the Chinese cognition, let's face it, the Chinese intelligence that is, well, more telegraphic and therefore lesser than that of somebody who speaks English. And that's exactly what happened in the early 80s. A very well-intentioned psychologist did a study of Chinese where he noticed that in Chinese, you don't have to be as careful about indicating what are called counterfactuals or the hypothetical as in English. And so if you're going to say a sentence like, if you had seen my sister, you would have known she was pregnant. The part with the had and the would have and having to make those specifications, in Chinese, you can get away without that. The Chinese version of that sentence is much more economical. You just don't have to say as much. It's left implied. 
He figured, well, if you speak Chinese, you must be somewhat less sensitive to the hypothetical than a Westerner. And he did experiments which showed just that. And so if you're Russian, you're a little quicker at distinguishing when dark blue goes to light blue. If you're Chinese, apparently you're a little less quick at wrangling those sorts of hypotheticals when they're presented to you. Hmm. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander if you're prepared to um, impute onto the Hopi some sort of special perceptiveness, then you have to be prepared to dismiss all Chinese speakers as, you know, a little bit obtuse. Frankly, yes. And it's not only Chinese, although I focus on that in the book. That basic game plan of Chinese is the way a great many languages in East and Southeast Asia work. And so you're dismissing the cognition of billions of the world's human beings if you also cherish the ideas about the Hopi and the Russians and the people who have the sources of information. And what it comes down to, very briefly, is that none of these things are worldviews. If the proper way of looking at the Chinese data is to say, well, whatever these tiny discrepancies somebody can find by putting somebody in a booth and subjecting them to an experiment has nothing to do with what we would call their worldview. And frankly, I think that's what we all are going to think about the Chinese work, then that means that we can't think of it as a worldview when the results are cool, such as, wow, they're really interested in sources of information, or they can feel something between their fingers, and they're more sensitive to the material than we are. It all comes out awash, which means we're all the same. And that's what languages are showing us, not that we're all looking at the world differently because of our languages. You are not saying emphatically, you're not saying that language is never affected by culture, by geography and conditions that uh, influence what our vocabularies are, right? That is not By no means. No, 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 not at all. And that brings us to another issue, which I think confuses this whole discussion, which is that, of course, culture can affect language. That happens all the time. What would be surprising is if it didn't. However, sometimes Morphians sell that sort of thing as the language affecting the cognition and the culture, which some of us find a little bit bizarre. And so an example of that is something else which in itself is is wickedly neat. And that is that there are people in Australia who think in terms of north, south, west, and east all the time rather than in front of, in back of, to the side. So with one of these people, let's say that you stand them in front of a tree stump and you can ask this person, where's the tree stump? And they won't say in front of me. They'll say north of me. And they have this sense of direction no matter what happens. You can make them dizzy. You can put them in a basement. For them, north is always something that they're thinking about. And the notion of whether something is in front of or in the back of you in particular doesn't play a part. Ah, so the Warfian in me makes me say, oh, my goodness, what a, what a special culture because they're, they're so unself-absorbed. Instead of marking everything's place relative to their own position, they look at themselves and everything else relative to the whole globe. They are such <laughs> generous, spirited people. So much I happen to know some, Bob, self. actually. They're, they're very, very selfish. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard that sort of thing said. But I think something else I've heard said about these people and their language and their culture is... 
Oh my goodness, that's fascinating. Their language makes them think of it that way because their language, of course, has these words for north and south and west and east, and you learn those words earlier when you're a speaker of those languages. And so people say that proves Warfianism. The language is creating a worldview because they have to say north, south, west, east. But that's a very backwards way of looking at it. Rather, it's that they live on flat land. There are no languages like that that are not spoken on flat land. So north, south, west, and east are obviously of a certain critical importance to them in determining the direction of things. And so they have to say it. And so it's in their language. For anybody to look at that and say the language shapes the way they think seems to almost be based on a desire to exotify people and to prove this idea that people's languages are giving them different ways of looking at the world, different glasses. There's kind of a romanticization. So culture certainly affects language. Culture shoots its way through language in all kinds of ways. But in those cases, what we say is that human beings' cultures differ, which nobody argues with. But none of these things show that language ends up creating the way people look at the world. That's a bizarre twisting of what the simple facts are. Yeah, and I think you sort of poke fun at that twisting in the book by saying, you know, that a lot of these arguments boil down to, oh, how interesting it is that these people who don't wear clothing have no word for clothes. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, it's exactly like that. It really is as if there were these people who, you know, they live somewhere that's very warm. You just don't need to wear any clothes. And somebody comes along and takes down a list of their words and finds that they don't have a word for clothes and says, well, wow, you know, the reason that they're not wearing clothes is because they don't have a word for it. As if on a cold day they... They say, ah, oh, shit, man, I'm freezing my ass off. I wish we had a, have word a word for clothing. <laughs> and so I can't put anything on. Yeah, that's a real problem. In the book, I call these people the, the Stanapon tribe. That's S-T-N-A-P-O-N. And really, that's no pants backwards. And I've always been hoping somebody would catch that. Yes, the Stanapon tribe. And they don't have a word for clothes. That did you really is the do way... that? <laughs> I really did do that. You could look at the book. But the issue is cultural differences as opposed to this idea of languages making us different. Okay, so, John, I just want to quote from your book, and this is something that you kind of paraphrased more or less a few minutes ago. You say in the book, even if you can trick someone into revealing some little bias in a very clever and studiously artificial experiment, that weensy bias has nothing to do with anything any psychologist, anthropologist, or political scientist could show us about how the people in question manage existence. So, in other words, you're saying, yes, these experiments in the lab are interesting. Let's keep in mind they're highly artificial. They show these very, very tiny little differences, milliseconds, which have nothing to do about a worldview, what it means to be human. So, okay, let's then soften this Worfian hypothesis a bit. Perhaps a better way to think about Worfianism is that it's an idea that language and culture exist in a kind of feedback loop where language evolves according to the needs and the thinking of the people who speak it. But you would say, no, that's simply not true either. No, none of that. One might want to think that, well, the culture feeds into the language, but then the language feeds back into the culture, and it goes round and round and round. But really, there's no evidence for that here either. Culture is the issue, and language just comes along for the ride. And one way that we know this is that languages don't 
change along with what you might consider the needs of speakers to be. And so, for example, just look at a language that isn't usually discussed that much in Warfian experiments in terms of being the focus of the endeavor, and that's the one that we're speaking right here. Think about English. If there are these world views, then what's the world view from English? And think about how many very different kinds of people speak English. Think about how English has existed for a very long time in terms of what we call a language. English has existed certainly for 2,000 years, if not more. And yet there's no sense in which the way it's changed has tracked what its speakers have been going through, especially given that its speakers include people today, of course, not only in the United Kingdom, but the United States and Australia and India and a great many places in the Caribbean and in Africa, and I don't even need to go on. And so to the extent that we think that the idea that there's a worldview from the language that this interview is being conducted in is a little seedy, then we have to understand that the idea doesn't work for the Hopi either. All right, John, I have two questions for you. The first one is, assuming you're right, that we are incorrect to ascribe ways of perceiving the world to kind of linguistic handcuffs, then what does account for the, the vast differences in the way language is constructed around the world? You know what, Bob? The answer to that question is chance. And there are people who don't want to hear that, but really most of what is in a language as time goes by, most of what pops up, I use the soup bubble analogy in my book, is chance. Some languages will have eight different past tenses. That happens in some languages of Southern Africa. You never know quite what's going to happen in any given language. In any given language, something's going to happen. But it's just a matter of chance. Really, an analogy I use in the book is that the relationship between the way a language works and its culture is like a tartan in Scotland. And so each clan or group has a particular kind of kilt pattern. Nobody would say that the particular colors and patterns of their particular tartan correspond to anything about them. It's just that to have a particular kilt is what one of the things that marks that clan as a clan. Languages are the same way in terms of what their cultures are like. We can study cultures, we can study languages for other reasons, but not as windows into the cognition of their speakers. All right, point taken. But I promised you I had a second question for you, and this is it. Uh, John, I'm going to tell you a little story, actually. A friend of mine runs a big global uh, advertising agency. And um, mm -hmm. some years back, he was... Uh, working with President George H.W. Bush, and it was in the Oval Office with the president. And, <laughs> the, Oval, and, the, and the President Bush says, yeah, you're an ad guy, right? Let me, let me ask you a question. Do you do a lot of polling? I hate polling. I mean, you think you're getting information. You're not really getting very good information. It's so, it's so biased by what the pollster thinks the question is. And really, you end up making decisions based on very squishy data. And then no you're no longer governing based on principle or even sound policy. You're governing based on uh, you know, the, keeping the pulse on the electorate, which may not even understand the problems. It's just, and, and really, the polls are never very clear-cut anyway. There, there's usually, as, when you make a decision that, that trying to do the popular thing, you end up having nearly as many critics as you have supporters. You say, I hate that polling. And my friend looks at the president of the United States and he said, who said anything about polling? Uh, that's my question for you. You have 
gone to some trouble in the book, in fact, assiduously and constantly mm-hmm. making the point that you have no real gripe with the the neo-Warfians who are investigating their subject and doing mm-hmm. genuine linguistic science in order to to find out what's what. Uh, but mm-hmm. your gripe is rather with the popularization of the notion based on faulty understanding of what the the linguistic science really is. So yeah, I, who yeah. said anything about polling? Why did you write this book, which you call a manifesto? I might call a polemic. Uh-huh. And to uh-huh. why, why take this on? Has this really been burning your ass for some good while? <laughs> yes, it has. And what's been burning said ass has not been the psychologist's work, but it's the way the public is encouraged to take this work up. And I guess what is burning me in particular, although I don't think about it this way. Really, I find the whole issue interesting for a million reasons. But what burns me is that I really do detect a kind of condescension in the way people take Warfianism and use it to reinforce their sense that they understand that we Westerners are not superior. I know that they don't mean any condescension, but they end up not doing what I think they're trying to do. The way that you feel and express that all human beings are equal is by looking into, for example, what is evidence of the higher kinds of cognition among people in indigenous cultures of the kind that we honestly value in ourselves. Not just whether or not you can feel the difference between a stick and a piece of rubber, but evidence that people are really thinking in the way that we are. So I use one example in the book, which is um, the Saramaka people of the rainforest in Suriname. Something that I happen to know about them, it was discovered by the main anthropologist who studied them, Richard and Sally Price, is that in terms of art, for them, art changes by the decade just as it does for us. And so you'll see that they are doing a kind of basket weaving or a kind of sculpture, and you'll think, oh, they're eternal artworks expressing their cosmological (laughs) relationship to the great gods above. But actually, they will look at a piece of art that their father did, and they'll say, oh, no, that's from before. We've moved on to something completely different. They'll look at something from 100 years ago, and for them, that's cute but antique in the same way as our art from 100 years ago sounds now. That kind of thing is what we're looking for, not celebrating that people like their food. So what burns me is that the way Warfianism is sold to the public ends up condescending to people who I think deserve better, and very briefly also, I think that the part about Chinese and languages like that is really important because there's a certain kind of person who is a professional contrarian who I think will think about things like that. And who knows where somebody might take that sort of thing, where you look at Chinese and you think, I guess this means that these people are less intelligent. And it's been done, I might mention, in terms of, say, black English. And black English not always expressing a verb to be. There were people back in the 60s and 70s saying that that was evidence that black children in the schoolroom aren't capable of making connections between things. You never know where this stuff is going to go. So the psychologists, hooray, wonderful stuff. Reading about Warfianism in certain kinds of books and in certain newspapers, that is not as benign as many people think. I think, John, Bob is forgetting that you probably deal a lot with college students, college students who are interested in language and linguistics, who come to you with you know very good intentions, but are just sort of 
infused with these beliefs about this or that culture and how they must be like enlightened in some way because their language does mm-hmm. this. Their language has a word for that. You know, Mike, it is perfect that you brought that up. I want to get in this, which I didn't know I was going to have occasion to mention. Yes, what's biting me is less how a bunch of psychologists in a room feel than the fact that I'm regularly presenting this sort of thing to students and also to the extent that I try to take linguistics to the public, to the general public, and seeing the rapturous sense that people get from the pop presentations of Warfianism. And so, despite that, I should say that right now I am supervising a psychological experiment done by a couple of undergraduate students of mine where they became interested in knowing how do people whose languages have a masculine, feminine, and a neuter conceive of neuter things? That's a real question. I would love to know. One suspects that there's going to be something because the Warfian effect itself is real. So I'm not not interested in it. I would love to see what they're going to find. I don't want them to find nothing. I want them to find something, and I will shout it from the rooftops. However, we also have to make sure that we don't call the Chinese stupid and that we don't celebrate people for understanding where things come from. That's all. I just got to say I understand attributing high voices and skirts to tables. All my tables have vaginas. I don't know about you guys. (laughs) (laughs) To me, tables probably shave, but that's my lack of imagination. Thank you so much, John. This is really fascinating. Thank you very much, guys. I was happy to talk about the book. A pleasure as always. Indeed. John McWhorter is a linguist and professor at Columbia University. He is the author most recently of The Language Hoax. Pick it up because it is fantastic. Bob, did I really just say to John McWhorter that all of my tables have vaginas? (laughs) You did, Mike. You did say that, and I kind of cringed. Although, you know, truth is an absolute defense. Should I edit that out, maybe? Well, I guess you've decided not to. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) All right, well, join us in a couple of weeks when we'll have an all-new episode, our first with Ben Zimmer, who as I mentioned at the top of the show, will bring to us a word or a phrase. We have no idea what it's going to be. In the meantime, you can subscribe to our podcast, if you haven't already done so, on iTunes, where you can leave a rating and a review. You can write to us. We have an all-new email address, Bob. It is lexiconvalley at slate.com. We're not using the Gmail address anymore, so don't write us there. Lexiconvalley, all one word, at slate.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Please do, at lexiconvalley. I want to thank John McWhorter, who is the author of The Language Hoax. Go out and buy it. It's fantastic. And I want to thank Andy Bowers, the executive producer of all of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mikey. We done here? We are done. Mm. Later, Gator. Later, Gator.